Hello Cleveland. Turn your speakers up to 11 because it's time for too much effing perspective. The podcast that asks musicians and entertainers to relive their most spinal tap moments when nothing seems to go right and everything gets kind of weird. I'm your host Alan Keller, a comedy writer in LA and lead singer of the least heralded Chicago band, The Falling Willendas. And I'm your co-host Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for Radiohead and lead singer of the least heralded Milwaukee band, The Vainglorious. Our guest today has toured and recorded with such rock legends as Morrissey, Smashing Pumpkins, Garbage, Ricka Kasich, and Adam Ant. I'm talking about Chicago drummer Matt Walker. We're going to talk to Matt about his experiences with some of rock's most brilliant and difficult personalities, why destroying a drum kit is better than taking Xanax, and how tappy things can get when you're forced to lie to a Russian border guard. So without further ado, let's go to the TMEP show. It really puts perspective on things, doesn't it? Not yeah. too much. There's too much yeah, perspective, man. It's so good to be back, Alex, for episode two. You know, this podcast has now lasted longer than my band, Channel 83. Oh, really? You were in a band that lasted only for one show? Yeah, it was back in the 1980s. I was going to college at the University of Wisconsin, and I was looking to start a band, and I found these guys looking for a lead singer. So we got together, we started rehearsing, and you know they thought they were punkers, but they shopped at Chess King. Cool. Yeah. But they did love some great bands. We were covering the Stooges, Gang of Four, the Buzzcocks, bands I love too, but I also love pop. So one day I brought in a song called Closer to the Borderline off an album called Glass Houses. Billy Joel. It's not Piano Man Billy Joel. It's not Just the Way You Are Billy Joel. This is Skinny Tie, New Wave Billy Joel. Look, if I'm being honest, New York State of Mind Billy Joel, Big Shot Billy Joel. I love Billy Joel. There, there's lots of Billy Joels. One for every occasion. <laughs> so I let the guys listen to the song on my Sony Walkman, but I didn't tell them who it was. And they loved it. They loved it. The bassist asked me if it was Billy Idol. I said, Half right. <laughs> so not only wouldn't they do that song, um, after we'd had our first gig that weekend at Headliners in Madison, they kicked me out of the band. Harsh. <laughs> totally. Uh, my point is, if you're a punk rocker, you don't care if they think you're cool or not. I mean, Sid Vicious sang my way. Yeah. That's a nice setup for our theme for this week's episode, which is band dynamics, interpersonal interactions and conflicts. One of the scenes from This Is Spinal Tap that resonates with most musicians is when David St. Hubbin's girlfriend, Janine, joins the band on the road. She shows up at Shank Hall, and immediately it threatens the delicate power structure between David, Nigel, and their manager, Ian Faith. It comes down to egos. Egos play such a big part in flourishing the bands and the breakup of bands. I mean, think about Oasis, Guns N' Roses, Simon and Garfunkel, Pink Floyd, and, and of course, Van Halen. And don't uh, forget Martin and Lewis, the 2003 Lakers. Lincoln administration, my parents. <laughs> that may be too much having perspective, Alan. Let's take a short break and then get back to our interview with Smashing Pumpkins drummer, Matt Walker. And now our conversation with a musician Morrissey called a Greyhound Unleashed drummer, Matt Walker. And I'm going to warn you, Turn off your washing machines, milk steamers, and Roombas, because Matt's audio is a little off. Here we go. 
Alex and I were talking in the opening about the famous breakup of Spinal Tap and how typical that is from band to band. I've been I've been watching a lot of documentaries and um, reading a lot of bios about bands, and it's just it's almost tedious. It's <laughs> a good word for it. Yeah, but you know it's it's true. Spinal Tap allegedly broke up because of a girlfriend, right? But it's not about that. You know, that's just the straw that breaks the camel's back. It's all about ego. Right. And I think that's something we've seen over and over again. And you have an incredible career with lots of great bands, but it seems that you are very well acquainted with the band dynamic and how it eventually... Yeah. (laughs) Right? Yeah. I I was actually thinking about this. I've been the pinch hitter for as long as I can remember, from my very earliest drumming days. My friends, you know, all went to school and had various bands wherever they were. And one of them went to Wesleyan in Connecticut and his college band had a gig at CBGB's. And I don't remember what the reason was, but their drummer was unable to do it. So he reached out to me and said, hey, if we fly you out, can you like, you know, come learn the whole set? and We'll drive up to CBGB's and we'll play the gig. And that's what I did. And it actually was was quite a bit of fun. But funny enough, right around that same time period, another band, this was a Chicago band, was also supposed to play at CBGB's. And their drummer had a panic attack or something and was unable to play. And they called me and had me fly out and do the set at CBGB's. Those were really small gigs, but it, it just continued from there. I mean... Some of the biggest gigs in my career were, were similar circumstances where I was coming in to um, fill in for somebody. It's funny because I know you, you're an easy guy to work with, and that's not often the case. I've had drummers that were difficult. And, oh, just um, drummers, huh? <laughs> Especially the drummer. I had a band, Women's Liberace, and we were recording an album, and the drummer was late. And then all of a sudden he showed up. And he looked really bad. And I'm like, what's going on? And he's like, I crashed the car at an intersection and I've kind of had something to drink. So I ran away and I left the car. No. Yeah. But you seem to be a panacea for trying to put bands together again. I mean, you were the drummer that replaced Jimmy Chamberlain in the Pumpkins. Can you uh, talk about that a little bit? Yeah, that was probably the most notable case of me coming in last minute. Before that, I was in the band Filter. and. We were touring uh, in support of the album Short Bus, uh, which I didn't play on. I joined the band afterwards. But we supported the Pumpkins two months on their European leg of the Melancholy Tour, which was incredible. We were all huge fans, and the, the Pumpkins were the top of their game, and we were just so thrilled to be asked to do that tour with them. And in fact, at the very end of the last date of that tour, they invited my, me and uh, the guitar player to join them on 1979 at Wembley. So <laughs> it was strangely like foreshadowing. I didn't know it, of course. But yeah, so I played drums and Jimmy played uh, acoustic guitar. But after that tour, Filter went on to do a supporting tour with Ozzy Osbourne. This was before Ozfest. And at some point during that tour is when it all went wrong in New York for the pump they decided that Jimmy could no longer tour with them or shouldn't tour with them and they needed to find someone else. And so they did reach out to me because I had gotten to know them so recently and was from Chicago, of course, and asked if I could audition. Of course, the answer was yes, but I was on tour at the same time and and the, the audition was scheduled for 
pretty, it was either the day I got home or the day after I got home. And so our tour was wrapping up. We were actually in Hawaii and I went and practiced at this little strange rehearsal shed and came home, did the audition. And I somehow or another got the job. And then days later, I was on tour with them. It was a little overwhelming, to be honest, but it's strange at the time. You just kind of go with it. I was in my mid twenties. That's just kind of life generally in your mid twenties. You just go with it. Just all these surreal, incredible things happen. So that was kind of how that came to be. You were also in a great band that's not well known, Cupcakes, signed to DreamWorks, and did an album in London with Stephen Street, which I love and I recommend highly. But that band had some, uh, let's just say push-pull personalities in it. Can yeah. you go into what happened there? That's actually you not being a panacea, you being in, in the middle of the, the thing, right? That was what was exciting about Cupcakes. And uh, Cupcakes started while I was in Filter and carried on into the Pumpkins. So I was actually playing in both. And in fact, I had days off on the Pumpkins tour and flew back to Chicago to play with Cupcakes at Double Goal. That's how crazy committed I was to having our own band, which was really exciting. And it was really a fun experience. We all believed in the band. But as you started the program off saying how all these bands break up and it's tedious and it's always for the same kind of reasons or the egos and all that. I mean, it's just another case of it. But I think what tends to happen is that the bands that are more the most exciting and have the most energy and have something that's most intangible, the reason for that is chemistry within the band. That chemistry is also the thing that usually will tear the band apart. Sure. It works both ways. It's like a relationship, was, right? When the sex is really good, the relationship doesn't last as long. It's funny you say that because as you, I, I thought of this quote, I think it's Sting who said, being in a band is like a marriage without the sex. So, <laughs> although one might say that the music is the sex. I like that you brought up the police because I read that Andy Summers said, we broke up because none of us had anything in common. Tony. <laughs> There's a really good podcast on the police, actually on synchronicity in particular, which goes through a lot of interviews and talks a lot about the disparity in their personalities and it goes into all of that. I guess it's still fascinating. That's where we're all still talking about it. Alex, you were tour manager of a band that was volatile too, right? The Outdoors. Yeah, that was a short-lived experience. I was asked to leave. After you were asked, the two man, <laughs> yeah, got yeah, exactly. Out. I was the one who uh got broken up with. Not the drummer's fault, it's not the guitar's fault, it's the tour manager's yeah, fault, exactly. Creative differences yeah, with the tour cre manager, yeah. <laughs> creative differences, yeah. That was the tour actually right before I tour managed Radiohead. Anyway, it was a healthy juxtaposition of going, okay, this is this is how unpleasant things can be. You know, going with Radiohead was the exact opposite. I think you need to interview more tour managers because their perspective on what bands go through on the road has got to be fascinating, the shit they have to deal with. Yeah. Well, that which is it's, it's incredible. I heard the longtime tour manager for the Ramones had this joke. He said, What's the difference between a tour manager and a toilet bowl? <laughs> a toilet bowl only has to take shit from one asshole at a time. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty good. Okay, so you did Radiohead, and they're obviously a very solid, well, they've been together at least. What did you glean from your time with them, why that works so well? You know, this was Pablo Honey. They had a big hit on MTV. 
I mean, it was exciting because all the shows were sold out. They were all, it was all small clubs. It was fabulous. And they were kind of in awe of the experience on their first U.S. tour. Having been on some really rough tours myself, some death marches prior to that, I said, guys, just really relish this. This is not the way it always goes. They really, to their credit, took that to heart. Ed O'Brien said to me years later that he remembered me saying that and appreciated it. So they were longtime friends, had a lot of respect for each other. It hasn't been without its challenges. But even in terms of the roommate choices, back then, you know, everybody was sharing hotel rooms. Tom York and drummer Phil Selway, who you may know, Matt, they shared a room because Tom is a little more volatile and Phil is totally chill, right? So they were a great combo. And, Were you uh, the one that put them together by chance? I was not. That was predetermined. Having done a little bit of touring before they came over, they knew what the right combos were. And Ed and Colin Greenwood shared a room, and they were a good combo. So they kind of, early on, they began to figure out how their internal psychology worked well together. Yeah. That's interesting, because I, I spent a day with Jellyfish back at their Apex and just maybe released the second album and really had a great future. But they were coming apart at the seams right in front of my very eyes. I, I remember we were both staying at the same place and Jason Faulkner didn't even hang with the band and Roger Manning, you know, do you know Roger? And so Roger was there with his brother and his brother was in the band, but he was quitting. And Andy, the drummer was buttonheads. They were just not going to last for another album. And it was a shame because I think they only did two. But this is a tough thing that we're on the topic of. If everybody got along and everyone was just nice all the time, I think that we'd really be missing out on a lot of electric, dangerous, off-center music and you know, bands. I think it just comes with the territory. There has to be a bit of acceptance to that. In my various circumstances, particularly in Cupcakes, I kept coming around to that. You'd reach the breaking point, then with any luck, you'd have the epiphany where you realize this is okay. This is part of the deal. You want to make music that's unique and has an edge and has a combustive energy. You got to deal with the other stuff too. Can't have it both ways. So Matt, you have a very unique perspective because you've been in bands with two, let's just say idiosyncratic characters in rock music. You toured with Morrissey and with Billy Corgan. And I have a question for you. Who is easier to work with? in the studio and who was easier to deal with on a day-to-day -day basis? Um, I pause for a moment <laughs> while I ponder the answer. <laughs> Measure your words uh, carefully or not. I hope you don't. Or not. I usually do. There was challenges for both and they're different. Billy's expectations of, of the musicality that the band needed to provide, certainly the drummer, and certainly coming after a drummer like Jimmy, were very high. He pushed me to play at my absolute limit of what I was capable of. It was a pressure cooker because the band was so big at that time. So there were a lot of forces at work, and he was under a lot of pressure. I was under a lot of pressure. So there were tensions that arose, but they usually were musical. Morrissey is famously difficult or challenging in different ways, but... When it comes to the music, he's very open-minded, very open-minded. And he doesn't detail everything. For one thing, you know, I guess I got hired because my sensibilities are congruent with his. So already there's some kind of common ground artistically. 
but he will offer suggestions, but they're more broad strokes. This doesn't feel right, or this is what the song is about. Can can you, and it's usually just not me, it's the band. Can you support this idea more? So they're more kind of general comments and input, esoteric, really. And sometimes that's good, and sometimes it makes it hard because you don't really know what to do, and you have to do it as a group. It's not enough for you to just change the way you're playing the drum set. It's like everybody has to adapt at the same time. So, yeah, they both are challenging in different ways, but I wouldn't want it any other way, you know. I think that's what makes them both so exceptional, and they're both, without a doubt, fearless. They're just fearless about pursuing their vision and their art in the face of criticism or the public eye. And being that close to both of them, I can tell you that is a big deal. That takes guts. That takes guts. And they've both been doing it their entire career without fail. And what's interesting is that they're both still making relevant, original music. They're not just playing their hits and going out and doing album tours and things like that. Now, I have a lot of respect for that. I want to ask you, Matt, given, like you said, the exacting qualities of these guys in different ways and their unique personalities, did that result in some sort of absurd situations, whether they're conversations, whether they're circumstances that you can... Spinal tap Spinal moments. tap moments. I guess in both instances, there were times on stage where I've had my Keith Moon moments. It's actually highly gratifying to be frustrated and at the end of the show, take it out on your drum set, you know? <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's talk about that. So in Spinal Tap, Nigel Tufnell takes Marty DeBerge into his guitar lair and goes from guitar to guitar. And one guitar is so precious that he can't even look at it, right? I was kind of surprised to hear when we were talking that you've been less delicate with drum kits <laughs> in your past. Can you tell us the story about Morrissey and when you first destroyed your drum kit on tour with him? I mean, it goes back further than that. My kit destruction ways to your question about the Morrissey thing. <laughs> yeah, so I don't remember what it was, but I just felt compelled to destroy my drum set at the end of the show. And in the midst of it, he had already left the stage. And then when I came off, he said to me, did you just destroy your drum set? And I, I kind of thought he was going to be upset or unbecoming. And I said, yes. And he said, I want you to do that every night. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, I don't want to destroy my drum set every night. So um, we actually started picking up used drum sets along the way that were disposable. So I could just basically have Adam night after night. And we did it for quite a while. And it got to the point, though, where I was just, I, I would be playing the set and just dreading and be tired. You know, I just wouldn't feel like it. But I always found inspiration when it came time. But you've also destroyed a gong or two, right? Oh, yeah, the Icelandic gong. Yeah. We had a gig in Iceland and we arrived at Soundcheck and the drum tech, you know, they, the tech set up your gear and you show up and, make sure that's all working. So we get there, it's all set up. And he says, well, there's a little bit of an issue with the gong. The gong I usually use is quite big. I think it's like eight feet or something. It's a massive gong. So he said, yeah, your gong didn't make it for whatever reason. So we reached out to the Icelandic Civic Orchestra and borrowed theirs. And I take a look at it. It's smaller and it's on this like rickety stand as well. So uh, I got a sound check. I got to give it a hit and make sure the thing works okay. 
I give it one hit and the thing just flies off the <laughs> drum riser 12 feet down into the ground. And of course the gong doesn't break, but the stand is in pieces. So what they do is they somehow or another reconstruct the stand well enough to hold the gong, but it's definitely not something I could hit during the show. And the keyboardist at the time, Mike Farrell, he has a gong sample. And so we, we decide, I'll mind hitting the gong. And they'll si simultaneously hit the gong sample. And hopefully with the amount of lights going and other distractions, it's like a magic show. No one will know, no one will know what happened. And, and we did that. <laughs> That's how it worked. And so Millie Gong Nilly was born. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah. And that was with Morrissey? Yeah. Was. Yeah. And in Iceland, yeah. you could have used one of uh, Bjork's necklaces as your gong. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah. That Matt, I was listening to your interview on the Carcon Carne. Is that the, the podcast? Yeah. Which was a lot of fun. Yeah. At one point, you referenced all the different gigs you've done at Metro and kind of how yeah. all roads seem to pass through Metro. Tying that to your, your gong story, <laughs> when I was tour managing PJ Harvey on her first U.S. tour, we were in Chicago, going to play the Metro on Thanksgiving evening. And th that morning in the hotel... The guy from, I think it was Rocket Cargo, called me and said, Alex, bad news. All the gear is still in L.A. Didn't get off the tarmac. And it's probably not going to get to Chicago till 7 p.m. You might want to make some other plans. <laughs> and so on Thanksgiving Day, I got the number of some rental place on a wing and a prayer called and happened to get somebody to answer the phone in the 20 minutes that he was there that right. day. And he had almost everything we needed for the show. Fortunately, Polly had her guitar. And they even had the Yamaha Maple Custom drum kit mm -hmm. that the drummer had asked to have for the tour, but had not gotten with the other rental that we had. So he was delighted. But it was one of those days of, it felt like it took years off my life, bringing all that stuff together. And in the spirit of the show must go on, pulling all those pieces onto the stage. And the opener was uh, David J from Bauhaus. Okay. His gear didn't make it either. So we even had to loan him a guitar. But uh, sometimes you got to just make do with what you got. That happens actually quite often. The band arrives and the gear does not. I've been in that situation before. Well, I have a Metro gear story. Probably one of the worst <laughs> moments of my life. It was when the Falling Melendez just started out and we had like this huge show at the Metro where labels were flying in to see us. And as you guys might know, I'm pretty technologically challenged. And for some reason, I picked the biggest gig <laughs> of my life to try to use a wireless unit, which is, of course... For the first time. For the first time. And, you know, like, remember Tufnell, his wireless picks up radio signals. Well, I didn't even get that far. I was not smart enough to realize that when you have a wireless unit on your belt, you should really tape it down. <laughs> so it's the first song. And I did a 360 and my wireless just flew off my belt and smashed into a million pieces. Right. And, and it took 15 minutes because I didn't prepare for even like a battery to go out. Have you ever been in a situation where there was some, you know, equipment malfunction where your drum tech is scrambling like under your legs oh, yeah. or whatever to get oh, something yeah. going. Tell us about that. I mean, that's happened numerous times. You break either a bass drum pedal or the bass drum head. I mean, that's the hardest one to get by. But in that scenario, you kind of have to reach over and play the bass drum part with the floor tom. So your ah, hands are right. crossing back and forth, which makes it even harder for the drum tech than to sneak under you and, and fix it. But my drum tech, Miro, for Morrissey, he's so amazing. He saved my ass so many times. Like, I'll start counting a song by looking at me, know if I'm counting the wrong song. 
like either by by my movement or by the tempo or whether or not I've like queued up the sampler correctly or whatever it is. He he whips something at me. <laughs> song, it's the next song. It's a lifesaver for sure. I saw Morrissey in 1990. Yeah. It was pretty much like the Proud Boys attacking the Capitol. Yeah. People were jumping on stage, tackling him. And he's a big guy, right? He never missed a beat. It's just complete chaos. Have you ever had to defend him or, or protect him? Well, I mean, as you know, there are times during Morrissey concerts where the stage gets stormed. It's a ritual. Instances where it's gotten out of control, my drum tech, Miro, and all the other techs will then join in the fray. It's like a male song. It's just bodies everywhere. It's amusing for a few moments until it's not, and then everybody makes a run for the exit. And it happened for hours, and it was absolutely harrowing. Yeah. When I first joined, I wasn't completely prepared for that. I guess I knew about it, but I had never been to a Morrison show myself or a Smith show, unfortunately. So when I joined, I was like, this is wild, but it was, it was quite exciting as well. But he doesn't always take it that, does he, sometimes? Sometimes it's, yeah, just a little bit too much. Either too many people or, or somebody's too aggressive. There's times where people won't let go. And, and then security, it's always a judgment call. Is this person just really passionate or are they dangerous? It's a tricky balance for sure. I want to stay on the topic of Morrissey, but circle back to our theme of breakups. One of the feel-good moments in This is Spinal Tap, they have the breakup and then Nigel storms off. At some point later, he comes back. He kind of meekly walks in the room and informs the band that Sex Farm is going to number five in Japan. And maybe they should think about doing something around that. And ultimately, one of the last scenes in the film is them in Japan and and everybody's back together and they're doing their best work. Do you have any tap-worthy reunion stories. Like with Morrissey, I saw this thing on the internet, and since it was there, it must be true. I think this was in a UK paper. You'd tweeted that things were getting weird with the Morrissey tour prior to a gig in in Manila. And shortly thereafter, you left the band, and Morrissey issued a pretty moving statement. It seemed like it meant a lot to him that you were no longer in the tent. I want to read that. This is what Morrissey wrote about Matt in a statement. This is Matt leaving the band. It says, Our little covered wagon has lost drummer Matt Walker, who is eager to bring his term to an end. No bargainings could persuade him to stay, and his interest drew its last breath at Stockton. Behind the kit, Matt was a greyhound unleashed, and his great work on years of refusal will always and forever speak up in his favor. His exit is sad, but he had no wish to continue, and a branch falls away. Kind of a passive-aggressive mixture of... that's, That's poetic. It's a Morrissey song, basically. I, I'll take it. Yeah, I took a hiatus from the band. I didn't know it was a hiatus. I thought I was just leaving. But touring is really difficult. It's hard. Um, that tour in particular was hard. A lot of travel all through the Far East. And I was missing home, missing my family. And I just, I needed, I needed to walk away. So that's what I did. But, you know, the, the Spinal Tap thing about Nigel coming back to the fold. So it was a year and a half later. Uh, they did reach out to me and ask if I would play a show for the Nobel Peace Prize um, ceremony. And I agreed to do it. Had some time and reached a place where I was feeling okay to come back and play again. And it was a little bit like that. Like I can still remember the first rehearsal for the show, reconnecting with the guys and replaying. And it had that kind of magical quality. That was the end of 2013. And it felt good enough that I stayed. So that's how that worked out.
Matt, now I'm going to ask you the most difficult question in the entire interview. <laughs> what is your favorite moment in This Is Spinal Tap? That is a hard question because you could just say the whole movie, but I did recently come on on something I had missed in the pre previous viewings, which was they're talking about their third drummer, Pete James Bond. Is that what it is? Right. Peter James yeah. Bond. <laughs> Russ Kunkel plays him in the movie. Right. And he says, yeah, and, and we were playing at a, a jazz blues festival. That's David St. Huffins. And, and Nigel's kind of interjects. I think it was a blues jazz festival. <laughs> <laughs> I can't do it justice. It's on a delivery. It also rem reminds me of a joke. A blues guitarist plays three chords in front of thousands of people. A jazz guitarist plays thousands of chords in front of three people. <laughs> so there is the distinction. So we titled this the favorite scene in the film. These spinal tap moments that musicians go through are challenging to live through at the time, but fortunately, with the benefit of hindsight, they can be quite funny. Yeah. Is there a particular situation of your own that you can describe as your own personal favorite spinal tap moment? You know, everyone has had the Cleveland experience where you can't find the stage or you get lost, especially in the bigger arenas or something like that. But no, another one just came to mind. This is during Cupcakes and, you know, we were signed to DreamWorks and we had recorded a record with Stephen Street in London, which was an interesting kind of foreshadowing again, because we chose Stephen Street to work on the record partially because of his work with Morrison and the Smiths. Viva Hates, right? Yeah. So we had done the record with, with Stephen and then the label, they wanted to re-record one of the songs we had recorded with him and make it faster and more accessible and then try another song with a new producer. So we went to LA for these last two sessions. And after having recorded at the townhouse with Steven, which just felt like majestic, and it was just an incredible experience to go to LA and try to like hit the bullseye of what was popular on the radio at the moment. None of us were happy. It was just really gross. And I remember getting into a big argument with someone from the label about one of the lyrics, which I didn't write. Preston Graves wrote it, but I ended up being the one championing the song. They thought that the word atonement was too big a word and the kids won't understand what it meant. And we should think about changing it. And I, I was just like, I was shit. Are you really saying this to me? You want to change the lyric? You think that someone won't even understand? And even if they did understand, they didn't look it up. Yeah, that's right. I just yeah. baffled. Oh, yeah. And then <laughs> the other thing was we recorded these songs and then there was the one song that we had recorded exaggerator with Stephen Street and then we re-recorded I'm not going to name any names in LA another producer and it was faster and slicker and had that kind of like early 2000s late 90s sharp production and we were arguing a big argument with the label the band wanted the London version which was a little slower had more weight to it and just felt like the us and I said to this person I was arguing with this new version sounds like lit and she says to me you wish you guys sounded like Lit. I was like, oh, oh my God. goodness. Does anybody wish they sounded like Lit? Is that a That's, Spinal Tap thing? <laughs> that sounds just like Spinal Tap's trouble with their label. Oh, because of the Bobby Fleckman stuff. Oh, I was thinking about like... Smell the glove, right? Totally Spinal Tap. Yeah, yeah, Smell the glove. We haven't talked about your, uh, your recurring tours with Garbage. You guys went to Russia, didn't you? Yes, I did. I think it was the first time I went to Russia was with Garbage. And again, I, I was called in very last minute. A European tour is tricky because you need to have visas and passport, and they didn't have time to get my papers in order 
for Russia of all places. <laughs> and and so we, we Mr. Walker, in. your papers are not in order. That was the guy. I wish I could do it just like that. I, I was standing in line with the band, and I knew that I had to go in and say that I was just a friend of the band tagging along as a tourist. Oh my goodness! It's late at night, and there's nobody in this. It's like a secure zone, and six foot tall guy in military uniform looks like Dolph Lundgren. And I get up there, and I'm a terrible liar. So I just feel it oozing out of my skin. And I say, I'm a friend of the band's, and I'm there as a tourist, and they let me in. Crazy. That would have been a big-time adrenaline situation. At least they had vodka for you, presumably, when you got on the other side. You know, I just recently found out that you played with Adam Ant, or you recorded with Adam Ant, right? Yeah, it's a little bit of a distant uh, relationship. As in, I did play drums on a track, but I, I was never in the studio with him, unfortunately, because I'm a huge fan. So I'm not into the Pirates thing. I never was really into Adam Ant. But then, two years ago, I listened to Derek Wears White Socks. Derek Wears White Socks. Dirk, right. Dirk, Dirk wears white socks. And I'd never heard of the album. It's from my favorite period in music, the 77 to 80 era. He's playing with Bow Wow's band right before they left. After before they left. If I know the story right, his band at some point got recruited uh, to be Bow Wow's band. So he basically lost his band. Hmm. It's like when Styx stole our drummer from us. Just like it. Yeah, exactly. Just like Just, it. Anyways, <laughs> it's probably the best album I've heard in 10 years, and it's 30 years old, but it's fantastic. I highly recommend Dirk Wears White Socks. Yeah, yeah. It's nice when you still discover records that just, or artists that just passed you by at the time for whatever reason, you know? Absolutely. I, I missed Elliot Smith. I found him through my daughter, and I just can't believe I missed his entire career while he was around. He's one of the best ever. We were talking about this. Our, our kids now are showing us music, and some of it's old, some of it's new, but they're exposed to so much. I think when we were growing up, you know, it was either goth or it was punk or um, metal or whatever it is. I get the impression that the way kids listen to music now is way more open. They don't feel so assigned to one club. Well, it's really interesting is like, I don't have any vinyl, but I have way too many CDs and my daughter had never seen a CD and I was about to throw them away. She goes, dad, these are the coolest things ever. Don't throw them away. She doesn't even have a CD player. I threw all my CDs. Did you well, really? No. I got to do it. Them. Half our attic is CDs and it's- uh, But a funny story similar is that when my daughter was young, CDs were what people listen to music on for Christmas. I got her a Muse record on vinyl and- and she opens it up. She goes, oh, thanks, Dad. This is so cool. And she looks at it. She flips it over. She goes, which side is the music on? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah. And then there's those uh, dial phones. And <laughs> no, yeah. It's just yeah. like my daughter saw Sergeant Pepper. goes, is this the original Sergeant Pepper CD? <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah, it's signed yeah. by digital Paul McCartney. Your grandpa bought that back in the day. <laughs> Matt, I do want to ask you, before we wrap up, you mentioned when you were with Filter, you toured with Ozzy, who, when you think of Spinal Tap-esque stories, it's just, you know, and that's even been brought forward as well, right? In the Motley Crue biopic, right, on Netflix called Dirt or whatever it is. Someone playing Ozzy has a role, crazy stuff, including the, the snorting ants 
story <laughs> and some of that stuff. Did you witness any direct Ozzyisms? No, I, I really wish that I had, but at that time he was kind of remote. We really didn't see that much of him. We hung around with the band quite a bit, but he would show up for the show and leave pretty much directly after. I don't even know if I talked to him once, hmm. but there was another epic stage destruction on that tour. This one is documented, actually. There's a documentary on Filter called Phenomenology. I'm pretty sure it's on YouTube. And this was towards the end of the tour. We had been touring for at least a year straight. And as would happen sometimes, it's an Aussie crowd. They were chanting Aussie. There was Aussie, Aussie, Aussie. We couldn't win them over. And our set was probably a 40-minute set. And 15 minutes into the set, we just all kind of looked at each other. And I don't know if we premeditated what would happen in the scenario, but it was like we did. It was like we knew. And we just stopped playing songs, turned every dial up to 11. <laughs> what else? So every amp, just feedbacking. And I was just beating like really obnoxious, super obnoxious, like from really fast, like speed metal beat, like with no dynamic, didn't stop for like two minutes, just like really just being confrontational, you know, and then do the opposite, just like clunk. <laughs> we were on stage you can't get us off there's nothing you can do about it until we finish and i know one of the band members gino ended up leaping into the crowd last of the mohican style i think someone threw something at him yeah it was like a cup of ice and he, he turns around he's so pissed he puts down his guitar and he just runs the, this is a big this is a far jump it's like 20 feet to get over the pit over the barrier into the crowd which he does that reminds me of a ice story myself. So playing a gig and some college kids started whipping ice at my bandmate, Scott. It's last song. And I said, let's go get them afterwards. <laughs> and they're not whipping it at me, good, mind you. They're whipping call. it at good Scott. Call. I jump off the stage afterwards to confront them. And of course, Scott didn't join me. Next thing I know, I'm surrounded by 10 guys having to negotiate this untenable situation. Where now, you I were always the Axl Rose of your band, weren't you, Alan? I was. I was yeah. Speaking of kids whipping things, I remember Radiohead playing at some college in New England, and someone threw a shoe, and it hit Tom in the head, and he was not. He he was not happy. His response was, college students, salt of the earth. <laughs> it was obviously like not a waffle stomper or like a Timberland or something. It was probably a, a, lo probably a loafer. It was a sneaker. <laughs> no permanent damage done, fortunately. Thank you so much for speaking with us. It's been a ton of fun. How can people connect with you, learn more about your music, your work, that sort of stuff? I guess just the usual social media channels. I don't really have my own website. Instagram, I have two accounts. One is MW Battery, and the other is Of A Thousand Faces, which is my solo project. And I do post sometimes on Twitter, same, same two names. I've heard really good things about Of A Thousand Faces, so I will also check that out. Cool. This has been absolutely great and very informative and a lot of great insight from you, Matt. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. Yeah, thank you, Matt. Yeah, you too. That's Matt Walker, one of our absolute all-time favorite drummers. So, Alan, I think Matt's perspective on conflict was really interesting. That tension that bands go through which actually can seem really unpleasant, you know, maybe it's not that bad of a thing, right? In fact, the way he described it, it's an essential part of the creative process. Yeah, it makes me reconsider all the guitars that were 
broken over my head during recording sessions <laughs> as being, those were positive things. <laughs> exactly. I agree with you. That's, exactly. I, I thought that was really interesting. It's like in his band, which had plenty of conflict, he had come to realize that was part of the process and part of what made them great. And if you think about it, I mean, all the great bands throughout time, none of them like each other. In fact, one of my first experiences with a rock star was sitting down at a party in Minneapolis with Grant Hart, the drummer for Husker Du. And he was telling me and my friend all these stories about his relationship with Bob Mould and heroin addiction and just all the crazy stuff they went through. And honestly, it sounds so unpleasant. And you think back to those records, Candy Apple Gray and Warehouse Songs and Stories and all the earlier stuff. It's genius work. These guys were godfathers of the American punk rock scene. And it's just, what would it be like to live through that stuff and to not like the pill you're doing it with? It's hard to imagine, but it's very clear that great art is created under those circumstances. And obviously, like, you know, the Beatles broke up. The Stones don't like each other. The Kinks hated each other. They'd fight on stage. These great bands are defined by their dislike for each other. Yeah. And I mean, you and I even have differences making this podcast. The right. good news is you're in LA and I'm in Portland, so I can't punch you out the way Roger Daltrey did with Pete Townsend. But you know, you didn't have knows? to send me the tarantula. I mean, fortunately, it died. <laughs> you know, at the end of the day, hopefully it makes us better. If you haven't noticed, this podcast is our love letter to Spinal Tap. We're grateful to its creators for giving us something fun to do. Feel like you're missing out on some of the inside jokes? Well, you can buy this Spinal Tap on iTunes, Amazon Prime, and YouTube, among others, or stream the music on Apple Music, Spotify, Amazon Music, or your favorite music service. This episode is edited by Gretchen Kilby. Music by J.K. Harrison. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen, and share your own effing perspective by rating and reviewing. Learn more about us on our website at tmepshow.com. Although it would be as great as having armadillos in our trousers, this podcast is not affiliated with This Is Spinal Tap, and no person or entity connected with the film has sponsored or endorsed its content. This podcast is not affiliated, sponsored, or licensed by Authorized Spinal Tap LLC or Century of Progress Productions. Alan, what's on tap for our next episode? We've got Zia McCabe from the Dandy Warhols. On behalf of my co-host Alex Hoffman and myself, thanks for listening. We're going to send you off with a song, Hookers and Blow, that Matt Walker played on from my solo album, Wuthering Depths. See you next time on Too Much Effing Perspective. You stepped off.